it's the 20, 27th. It is May the 27th. And I always like to start our, our time on tape here with the number of the lesson. And I did not write it down. It's going to be lesson number 27 this morning. Okay. So we're clicking along with our study. And we're looking this morning in Matthew chapter 5. <clears throat> excuse me. Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, as we continue taking one by one the Beatitudes and looking at these words. It's interesting to see how the Holy Spirit and God himself has provided us this information. It's so simple in its context. It's so simple when you look at it on the page. Oftentimes just a simple word. Today the word meekness or gentleness as we'll see. But when you start looking at that word, and what it means and how it's used and uh, how it's repetitive, perhaps, in many cases throughout the Bible, you begin, you begin to see the full message about what God was trying to say. And, and in short, that's, I think that kind of describes what I try to do here is uh, take these scriptures, Lord, and, and, or, and sometimes word by word, you know, jot by jot, tittle by tittle, if necessary, to get the real meaning of it. So we do that this morning, and uh, perhaps in just in our in our humanness, one of the things that's hardest for us to do is to submit ourselves, to consider ourselves, if you will, subservient. We know that in this life we uh, live in live in a world that's quick to take advantage of those who in any way appear weak. We talked about this a bit in our community group Friday. Sometimes taking the humble road, the, the meek road, if you will, uh, will subject us to difficulty. Uh, what was the verse that I didn't write here, but we did talk about it Friday night in community group. It was Isaiah 59, 15, I think, talks about when a person, I'll have to paraphrase it because I don't have it in front of me, but a person who sets out to live righteously makes themselves a prey, it says. You set yourself up before the world. You literally, you know, put on this big spiritual target, I guess. And, so, you know, to some people when they see that kind of, uh, attitude, demeanor, they see doormat, I guess, and they would be inclined to treat us in such a way. So how do we mesh that? How do we maintain strength in this life and the proper type of attitude toward others and at the same time not only follow the command of Scripture here, and it is a command, and, and being meek, being willing to be transformed into meekness, if you will, because there's a transformation involved, right? Would you agree with that? Nobody, nobody uh, arrives in this life <laughs> uh, meek, no. Uh, you may have a timid demeanor about some things, but it's quite the same thing. Now, this is something that we have to learn, something that we have to prepare for, submit to, yield to in our life. And I would say to you that only the Holy Spirit of God can make that transformation in our lives, so we, we submit to that. So properly, it's that we look at the word, you know, in the Greek, it's the word praus, P-R-A-U-S, and it does mean gentle, or it's most often translated as gentle. And depending upon what society you're living in, I say the word gentle, what pops into your mind? What pops into your mind? What kind of characteristics, perhaps, we, what kind of characteristics would you associate with a person who's described as gentle? Yeah. Unassuming. Yeah. Those kind of things, perhaps. And there are some other words that would serve to describe this word a little more clearly. I like the word self-control because so many times in Scripture when you see the word that's, that seems to be the application that they're talking about. Not every time, but a person who is self-controlled, uh, a person who is reserved to some degree. The point is, you know, why are they reserved? Is it because they're weak? Is it because they're in control? Which is it? It could be either or. Uh, but we see that mild or, or soft, if you will. It was a, a word used back in the day here 
where uh, it was often referred to or used to refer to a soothing medicine, it says, or even a, a soft breeze, okay? You would see that word. It relates to being submissive or quiet or even tender-hearted about things. Uh, but one way that it was used uh, fairly frequently, uh, according to, to commentaries, it would be the same word used if somebody were talking about like breaking a wild animal, you know, breaking a horse so that you could ride it. You know, it's that word or a derivative of that word. It's the same connotation. So it talks about something being brought under control, right? Something being brought under control. So that's kind of where we begin with it. So it's best understood perhaps by looking into the Old Testament because we see it used a lot, uh, particularly in the Septuagint. It's used a number of times. Uh, and it's just often paralleled or has a similar meaning to a word, uh, a phrase that we've already looked at, and that's of being poor in spirit. Very, they kind of fluctuate one with another, and yet there's some subtle differences, and we'll try to try to point that out here in, in just a little bit. So, the adjective meek is used 16 times in the Septuagint. 16 times, um, you find a term in the Hebrew. I'm not going to give you the word. Uh, there are two different words that are used. Uh, and when you look at them, I can't get into all the, the, the breakdown of the words, both in Greek and Hebrew, but when you look at them, again, you see these similarities between the words, which involves humility and also poor in spirit. There's a word, uh, when we looked at poor in spirit, uh, I pronounce it uh, patokos, it's P-T-O-C-H-O-S. And that word literally means pouring spirit. And when you look, what it's saying, when you look at these word uses in the Old Testament, uh, it's not that they're interchangeable, but they're used in the same sentences and so forth. So as to give uh, the reader the idea that there, there are two different things going on here, two different characteristics. And those characteristics are the characteristics of dependence and the characteristic of submission. So, in context, that's what it's talking about. So, it's the way it describes us. And that certainly speaks of a transformation, right? A person has been transformed into that kind of attitude, that kind of demeanor. Uh, we often say, you know, you can just look at kids, you know, little kids, the type of attitude that they display. I'm talking about like two and three-year-olds, which I have the the blessed privilege of doing right now. Uh, and if you watch them long enough, you'll literally see what they brought into this world, what they were born with, how they respond, how they think, okay? And that which is most natural to them is not meekness. It's not. So transformation is necessary in our lives. And I thank God that the Holy Spirit can make that transformation. So um, the, Holy, the Old Testament background shows that the meek are those who, like the poor in spirit, live in dependence and they live in submission to the Lord. This is what you see coming out of the Old Testament. So what is the difference, the essential difference between poor in spirit and being meek or gentle as we call it may simply be that it says poverty in spirit focuses on our sinfulness. When we talk about poor in spirit, we're looking inward. We're, we're making an acknowledgement of our sin. We know as a result of that because we've identified our sin. Uh, we've evaluated our sinfulness. Uh, we, we know that we're lacking, right? And it kind of focuses on us, focuses on our sinfulness, whereas meekness... When you look at that, focus is not on that, but rather on the holiness of God. In other words, we recognize who He is, although we know and clearly understand what we are, and we, we begin to see ourselves rightly before God. You know? Isn't it interesting to note when you talk about even positions of prayer, and by that I mean postures. If you look throughout the Bible, maybe I've shared this before, but what is the most common posture uh, typified in Scripture for prayer. What would you think it is? 
Is it standing like this with your face to heaven? Is it standing with your hands raised? What is it? Yeah, it's on the ground, face down on the ground in humility. We see that, I think, best when it comes to acknowledging one's sin and at the same time acknowledging who God is, you know, typifying both poor in spirit and meekness. We think of that guy, you know, that went up with the Pharisee to pray, you know, the the publican, the one that said he would not even lift up his head toward the altar, but he kept his head down and he, in just desperation, he was beating upon him on his chest saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner, you know. That's a good picture, a good scriptural, biblical picture of both those in action at the same time. A person who recognizes their poorness of spirit and yet, and they're meek. The result is that they respond in meekness and gentleness toward a God who loves them and cares for them. So this is God's way. This is his desire for us. In Job chapter 5, verse 11, it says, He sets on high... Those who are lowly and those who mourn, we've already talked about mourning, those who mourn and are lifted to safety. God has, if you will, uh, an affinity for people. Uh, He's drawn to, if you can say it that way, people who respond to Him in humility, in Uh, and just really abject brokenness. We talk about, you know, those who are of a broken and contrite spirit. These are the ones that God recognizes. So we have to agree this morning. When we pull all these scriptures together where we're talking about being poor in spirit, uh, meekness, or humility, both of which are part of humility, uh, this is what scripture requires. This is how God wants to see us. You might even say, and I think you can say, this is how we know that with, within our own heart and our emotions and all that, that the ground is fertile for God to do something. First of all, to forgive us of our sins because we've responded to Him rightly. We've responded to Him appropriately. But this doesn't stop. This doesn't stop throughout life. This remains the attitude which we must have toward a holy and righteous God. And it generates uh, a demeanor in us that allows us to, to act that way toward people as well. To be unoffensive. To be patient. To look on the things of another, as Paul says, with more importance than the things of our self. To be able to see God's hand even in the worst of situations. And I know sometimes we have to act, okay? That's the way I'm trained in my job, is to evaluate quickly and to react, okay? I to get you in trouble in life sometimes. <laughs> you know, law enforcement's a little different. So God wants to change us over, and it's a notable change. It's a notable change. People can recognize it. So Job shares that with us in chapter 5. In Psalm 25, 9, you will read that he leads the humble in justice and he teaches the humble his way. And that is to say that that's required. First off, he's going to look after folks who are humble. And again, we can pull meekness and poor and from that term, humble. He's going to look after those because we typify Christ's example. And this is God's command for us. He's going to do that. What am I saying? You don't don't have to really worry about being taken advantage of because you're serving Christ. That's His desire for you. That's the attitude, that's the demeanor that He wants us to present. And think of it practically. It does present a lesson in practicality because people expect to see something else. You stand out like a sore thumb when you respond to people in that fashion. Your, your, your attitude, your words, your demeanor, your tone, all that says, hey, I'm not dominated by the situation here. I'm not even dominated by the apparent abuse or rejection or whatever's coming at me. I'm not dominated by that. Why? Because I see a bigger picture. I see a bigger picture. And God is in control. He leads the humble in justice. He provides that. And what else does it say? He teaches the humble His way. We're going to know Christ better. We're going to understand Him more clearly. The Holy Spirit is going to have a greater reign in our life 
Why? Because we put ourselves, rightly so, we put ourselves on the back burner to listen to his voice, to trust him, and to be a tool in his hands. Yeah. So, that's what we have. Well, again, you see this progression here. We started by looking at poor in spirit, which is kind of negative in nature. Like we said, it, it, it denotes or connotes a person who's looking and evaluating their sin, if you will, which puts us in a, in a very humble and gentle state. It should, if we do it accurately. So we might view that as a bit negative, but it does involve this introspection and self-examination of our sin. That was first. And then that moves to mourning when we realize that. Again, we're focusing on the progression here. That moves us to a state of mourning, which we's already, we've already looked at. Just simply the result of this personal inventory. It's the result of doing what Paul told us to, to do, to examine ourselves, even to see whether we be in the faith. This is the context of what he's talking about there. And then today, meekness which is more positive as we, breathe, as we move away from this realization of our abject poverty, our need, our, our totality of, of lostness. We like to use the word depravity. We see that and we turn in positive hope, expecting God to do something out of His mercy and grace. We seek His righteousness because He's provided grace for us. He's provided salvation for us. He's provided everything that we need. He's provided that. So it is a definite progression. And we'll complete that or continue that next, uh, next time we come together, not next Sunday, but the one after, when we look at those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This would be the next step, the next step in the progression. And those who long for, long for God's uh, presence and power in their life, and the strength to step away from this, the world and its constant battering of us, its constant demands on us. God provides this in being <clears throat> gentle in our spirit, being meek provides that as well. Remember, Jesus says in Luke chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, what did he say? It's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So this issue about correctly evaluating who we are, what we are, what our greatest need is, is very important. Because when we evaluate our greatest need, obviously the greatest need of every person who has ever lived is salvation. To have their sins forgiven. To know that they are through faith and repentance, uh, part of the body of Christ. This is important. So see and, and remember how these are linked together. Jesus got in a lot of trouble, uh, it seemed like. He stirred up people because he constantly presented this type of attitude, if you will, and, and demeanor. Because they were expecting something else. They were not expecting a meek or gentle Savior. And like the, I think I shared with you before, the, some of the earliest artwork that we see, you know, uh, in history, going backwards is this picture of Jesus with the lamb up on his shoulder, you know, rescuing the lamb and so forth. The meek and gentle Jesus. How could this possibly be the Messiah? And this served to run cross-grain with folks when he would talk to them. They wanted and expected something else. We've covered this. Perhaps I'll give you a little, a little rewind on this because you had, with the Jews particularly, you had four primary groups. Of course, the Pharisees, and you might say what they were looking for was a miraculous kingdom. That's what they wanted. That's what they were expecting. The Sadducees looking for a more materialistic kingdom. Remember, they were a little bit uh, liberal in their approach, even toward the Old Testament Scripture you had those who were described as Essens who wanted a monastic kingdom. They thought, well, you just have to step away from the world and everything in the world and go out and live kind of like John the Baptist and everything will be okay. Then you had that group that, of course, was more militant, the zealots, and that's what they wanted. This is what they expected. And Jesus didn't do that. Now, he initially, uh, you know, 
gained an ear, gained a following because of that, because he was different. Uh, but he did not meet the needs of these particular groups here. You know, and it centers around, you know, this aspect of who he is. He was indeed meek, and he is our example. So the Word of God reveals that his desire for man is for man to live and operate in meekness. So are you there? Do you let your circumstances of the day determine how you act and how you respond to folks? Have you gotten to the point where you literally, out of just confidence and understanding of God's Word, knowing that His, His presence is, is full within you, there's no unconfessed sin. Your desire is to serve Him. And when that's the case, you can hear His voice clearly. You can hear His voice clearly. And the things that come your way, the, the challenges that come your way, and we have, we have them. Everybody has them day in and day out. Sometimes they're, they're, they're pretty big, aren't they? They're strong in our life. And we have a tendency to want to buckle. We have a tendency to perhaps lash out or even to blame. We want to do that. And the Scriptures are clear. God provides for us. He takes care of His own. He will answer our prayer. But we must respond to Him rightly. We come to Him poor in spirit. We come to Him. We mourn, just like James said that we shared. We mourn over our sin. But yet we turn to Him in meekness and trust Him. And eventually that turns into this great desire for righteousness, to know Him better, to live for Him. Because He always shows up. He always does what He says He will do. And we can say that based upon the authority of God's Word. He sets on high those who are lowly, Job says again in chapter 5. And those who mourn are lifted to safety. Numbers 12, 3 talked about Moses being the most humble person. It says he was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. And you go and you look at his life and who else? Who else do you know in the Word of God who stood, as it's described, face to face with God? And it describes he talked like we were talking, whatever that meant, okay? Hard to envision. Why? Because of humility? Is that the message there? That is. Because of humility? Because he saw himself rightly? And maybe because he was human, maybe even for just that amount of time, maybe it was, maybe it was only during that time when he was there before the, the burning bush. And God said, you take off your shoes because you're on holy ground and so forth. And he began to see himself. But for that time, he was a humble man. He could hear the voice of God. Think about that. And God, we want to know. Have you ever prayed that prayer out of desperation? God, I need to know. I need answers. I need to know. Or I want you to change me. I want you to change this about me, my attitude, my demeanor, whatever. I guarantee you it's going to be list, uh, uh, linked in some way to humility. We see Him. We find strength before God when we see ourselves rightly before Him. And the Scripture clearly indicates that He was able to use Moses the way that He used Him for that reason. And we know and we look and we can point to Moses' faults, can we not? We're talking about a guy who ultimately wasn't even allowed to enter into the land. Why? Because of his humanness, because of his disobedience, because of his example. Gives me great hope. <laughs> it does. Ephesians 4, 1 and 3, he says there, Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. And then in verse 2 he begins, he says, With all humility and gentleness. This is how we are to walk. Remember Paul's word, often translated conversation. He's talking about our lifestyle. What, what people think of, when, how, we, how we motivate, how we roll, as we would say <laughs> nowadays. That which characterizes us, the way we do things. He says we're to do it in humility and with gentleness. He adds with patience. Patience being what? A fruit of the Spirit. Something you don't have, not in the scriptural sense. You don't have apart from the Holy Spirit. You don't have that quality 
of patience, just like you don't have that quality of love or any of the other nine. You don't have them apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. So he says we walk in that fashion with patience. And what's the result of that? He says showing tolerance for one another in love. Now, some people require more tolerance than others, do they not? Have you discovered that? Which one are you? What kind are you? Are you the kind of person who requires a great deal of tolerance from others? Let's look at it that way. And if so, we might be a little too demanding, right, in our personality. It might be evidence of an absence of meekness and humility in our life. Could be, and that's the way we should look at it. Jesus would say, get the beam out of your own eye first. That's what he would say. Well, it carries on in verse 3. He says, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So he tells us what the goal is. He's talking to the church, giving the church (laughs) guidance. And the purpose here is clearly stated. Huh? To preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In other words, if we're not able to do this, if we've not arrived at this level of maturity, if you will, this level of commitment in the way that we engage with other people, whatever that may mean, then we run the risk. We run the risk of being one who might instigate disunity and hinder the peace of the body. We're responsible We're responsible within our relationships, with our spouses, with our children, within our families, within our extended families, even with people that we work with. We're to have a good reputation outside, are we not? We're to conduct ourselves rightly. And I dare say you can't do it without a proper measure of meekness in your life, a demonstration of humility. In Titus chapter 3, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, no one, to be peaceable, gentle, our word, same word, showing every consideration for all men. We're to be thinking, as Paul says, on the things of another. Not just the things of ourselves. How are we being perceived? Is my timing right here? Am I too upset to talk to someone about this right now? Having that kind of wisdom. Do I have all the facts? This is what we do so that we can be used of Christ. and So that we can demonstrate the love of Christ. You know, the more we understand this, the more that we have God's Word within us. Listen, here's the good news. This literally becomes the way we are. Not that we could never fall off the boat, okay, and act worldly or act selfishly. But this is part of a transformation. Don't don't see it as just on occasion somebody, you know, having it all together, being full of the Spirit and being able to act rightly. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about being changed, We're talking about when what we would describe as natural for us would be a reaction that would typify these characteristics, poor in spirit, meekness, humility. That's what we want. We don't want it to always struggle to try and live up to the standard. And you know, as we grow in Christ, we do experience that into some level, I guess, all along. But this can become who we are. It can. We'll never see it in its fullness. We'll never see it in its completion. Not in this life. But rest assured, we will see a change. And it will be a notable change. It will be a change that the world would recognize as well. That happens in our life. That's the strength of God's Word. So we're directed, if you study this, we're directed towards Psalm 37. And we'll get there in just a minute. i got one scripture, uh, Colossians chapter 3. Where again, Paul talking to the church there, beginning in verse 12, says, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, he says, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness. you got both of them there. And patience. Remember, there's a number of words for gentleness we talked about. 
compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Verse 13, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Now, when you look at this initially, when he's talking about, you know, he says, he says, put on a heart of compassion. Now, here I'm talking about these things becoming natural to us. We just display it because that's more of who we are. Here you might think, well, he's talking about, hey, making a conscious, you know, intellectual effort to, hey, man, I know I've got to act right here, so let me step in the bathroom here or closet and get myself together and get focused. That's, that's not the intent here. That kind of robs from the truth that we do become this. You follow what I'm saying? This becomes who we are, not just a goal to be achieved. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in our life to change us, and this is just one element of it. Just one element. So that's what He wants us to do. Just as the Lord forgave you, this should be our motivation, you also, or so also should you. Isn't it interesting how the reality of our forgiveness the reality of our state, if you will, our status before holy and righteous God seems to be the primary motivator, the primary element in equipping us to, to demonstrate this type of attitude toward, other, toward others simply because we know what we were. We know we've experienced our need for a Savior, have we not? We've experienced poor in spirit. We've been there. We've been to that point of acknowledging our sin. And we've come out of that by the great graciousness of God. So it's easier for us. We're, we're, we're more quick to forgive. We're more quick to speak the truth into somebody's life because we know if we do that, there's the potential for real change. Real change in a person's life. Why? Because we've been there. We've experienced it. We know what's happened to us. You can take that out of this scripture here. We go to Psalm 37. Psalm 37. I'm not going to read all Psalm 37. Psalm 37 is a precious psalm to me. Honey, do you remember Psalm 37? We uh, own... Our wedding night, we left the church and we went to Helen, George, uh, Helen, and we, we didn't go far. Didn't have a whole lot of money, didn't have a whole lot of time. Had to get back to work. And that's where we spent our honeymoon, and we were there at the Hellendorf Inn. I think it's still there in room 205, and uh, we prayed together, and uh, we wanted to read Scripture, and we read Psalm 37. And I remember that, and it spoke to us, but you go and you, and you read, and what you'll find in verse 11, he speaks very, very plainly about meekness and so forth. We'll get to that. But quickly, if you want to write these down or just mark them in your Bible, when you go through and you read the psalm, he talks about trusting the Lord in verses 3 and 5, all found in Psalm 37. In the language, he talks of taking delight in the Lord. He t- in verse 4, he talks of waiting expectantly for the Lord, talking about our focus in verse 7. He talks about putting our hope in the Lord in verse 9. And then the psalm shifts a little bit with an emphasis on obedience as a result of this. Now this stems from a person who is meek toward the Lord, as you read in verse 11. But in verse 14, he talks of uh, uh, people whose way is upright. Or in a number of verses, 17, 21, 25, 29, 30, and 39, he talks of that person being righteous. And, of course, we understand that. That's a person who finds their righteousness in God. I'll give you those verses again, 17, 21, 25, 29, 30, and 39. Twice he mentions being blameless, being blameless, verses 18 and 37. And then the instruction of, he, meant, he, he refers to uh, those whose heart is prepared. His steps do not falter in verse 31. In verse 31. Does anybody have it turned to? Brian, do you have it? Yes, 
3711. That's almost exactly what we're reading in Matthew here, is it not? Almost the exact same thing. And it's the focal point of that scripture. <coughs> and here the psalmist gives us all these, uh, uh, what would you call them, descriptors of a person who finds themselves in a state of meekness, if you will. Meekness is power under control. That's what we're talking about. It's the opposite of violence and vengeance, the total opposite. It's not cowardice. It's not emotional instability. It's basically a person who knows that they know that they know, that they have confidence, and that they have a rest in what they believe, and that is in the rest, <coughs> rest in God in His Word that we find. So, so we have some examples of meekness throughout the Word of God, Genesis chapter 13, you know, you have that story of Abraham and Lot, just to give it to you quickly. And you remember, uh, they were blessed, their uh, were growing, their people were growing, and the land wasn't growing, okay? So they started, I guess for lack of a better phrase, bumping into each other, and there was all this issue about water rights and this thing and the other. Now here you got Ab- Abram then, and, and Lot, okay? Now, that's his nephew, and he's, he can do whatever he wants, right, Abram? He's the elder. He can say, well, you do this, you do that, but that's not what he does, right? What does he do? Do you recall the story? He tells Lot, he says, look, stand up here on this hill with me. Yeah, look out. This is what we have at our disposal. Pick. Just go pick which way you want to go. Pick, pick which land you want and go that way. And he says, you go that way, and I'll just go the other way. Okay, and then... And, it's, it's to bring peace. He's not aggravated with him or anything. But at the same time, you know, he's not, he's not selfish. He's not desirous of getting his own, you know, because of his status or whatever. He's, not, he's none of that. It's a good picture of meekness that he displays. A lot of tension going on. And what was the result? The tension went away. Why? Because somebody, I like to say it this way, took the high road, right? Somebody took the high road, which required being more interested in the other person than yourself, okay? Which required a, a proper attitude, a, a proper demeanor. He laid it out there and said, man, this is a big day for you. Just pick. We'll fix this problem right now. Because God, Abram, Abram knew, God will provide for me. You see that? I don't have to worry about manipulation. I don't have to worry about getting what's mine, I don't have to worry about exerting my authority and so forth over this particular situation. God will work through meekness. He'll work through humility. He'll do that. Hey, and besides, I love you. I want, I want things to go well for you. I, want you. I want you to have opportunity and access, you know, whatever that meant in that day, which usually centered around grazing and water rights, okay? Sin got involved, didn't it? As Lot, as it says, pitched his tent towards Sodom. But Abraham did what he should have done. He did. And he's a perfect example here. Or perhaps David, when he found King Saul, who was trying to hunt him down to kill him. Remember, years before, he tried to pin him to the wall with a spear on a couple of occasions. Now he's trying to hunt him down. And David finds Saul in a cave. And... uh, he has opportunity to take his life. Saul is in the cave in and, and Getty, and the Bible's clear for his purpose for going in there, but David's in there. And some way, somehow, David gets his knife and he cuts off a piece of Saul's robe and comes out. And what he wants to do, he says, Look, I, I could have killed you. I had, I had you, as we would say today, in my sights. I don't know what they had back then. <laughs> but I didn't do that. And here's the proof. I cut off a piece of your robe. But what's interesting here is David's attitude because David knows the word. He knows that though, though Saul is disobedient and he lives godless and faithless, you know, many, many times, that he is the Lord's anointed. And David knows clearly what the word says. You don't lift up your hand against the Lord's anointed that doesn't just mean physically. You don't lift up your hand 
against his reputation either. You don't do that. You know? Even though you wouldn't kill him, you're not, you're not in a position where you can just talk about him and run him down, okay? And it says that David's heart convicted him over that. Think about that. His heart convicted him because he knew the Word of God. And he says, I, I shouldn't have done that. It may be true and it may be reflective that I could have killed you and I didn't do it. You know, Saul's response was basically, you're a bigger man than I am. He said something along those lines. But David didn't feel good about it. Why? Because of what was going on in his heart. He didn't feel good about that. And God is a what? He is a discerner of the heart. Sometimes it works out right for us, doesn't it? In spite of ourselves. But David knew what he was before God. That speaks of intimacy. When you, when you read, you know, that David was a man after God's own. This is the kind of thing it's talking about. This is the kind of thing that you see. It's one who, where the Word of God has taken root in his heart and it gets lived out. That's what's happening here. What happens when Christians live and respond in meekness? Well, we know initially, just like all these Beatitudes here, it says that they are blessed. We know that. But it adds here that they shall inherit the earth. They shall inherit the earth. And this requires a little bit of study. So what does this mean? Once again, this word they is a Greek word, autos. It's an emphatic pronoun. It's used because it signifies that only the meek will get this. Only the meek, in this case, will be blessed. Only the meek will inherit the earth. That's the clear meaning in the original language. And this word inherit, what is it? Cleronomio refers to receiving one's allotted portion, their rightful inheritance. It refers to that which, in this case, that which God has promised. And again, it's the same verbiage you see that, that Brian read from Psalm 37.11 here. Now there in Psalm 37.11, to be sure, it's specifically talking about the land of the covenant promise. That's what it's talking about in the Old Testament. That's the specific reference. But as you go through the New Testament and you continue to see where, and this can get real wordy, and I don't, I don't, I'm not going to, I'm not capable of breaking every single word down. I can give you the general meaning. When you go through the Old Testament and even in the Septuagint and the Old Testament, and you see these references to the land and so forth, it, it's, you have to make sure, are they, is it the word that means land, which is most often talking about, or maybe in every case, talking about the land of the covenant promise, just like from Psalm 37, 11. Or when they start using the word earth and so forth, does it mean something else? And you do see it morph a bit. And Jesus is talking about a greater fulfillment, not just talking about uh, the land of the covenant promise, you know. I mean, even within that, it said that Abraham you know, and that promise would, would bless all the peoples of the earth. There's an element where everybody's going to benefit from that. But here he's talking about something else. It includes uh, the earth later on, okay? Uh, you know, you can look at the millennial reign when things will be totally different than when we will rule, when there will be peace. That's part of the whole issue now as we understand about inheriting the land and the whole earth. It talks about being able to witness and preach the gospel throughout the whole earth or the whole world, as it would say. Land, earth, world. You've got to look at the specific connotations. So all this is encompassed. So not only that, not only does it have a past reference, a future reference, but rest assured for right now it does have a meaning for us as it relates to a possession. What possession does this give us now? What does being meek do for us right now to boil it down? What do you think the answer to that would be? Anything? Well, you know, that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty straight on. And maybe just to make it a little more specific, because of that relationship, because of a, I'll say, a greater fullness of God's presence within us, because of this submission to Him, we experience life, we experience this world differently than anyone else, right? We see that. 
We see things and experience things, good things that others don't see because they're looking through sinful eyes, through selfish eyes. This is a part of who we are and what our Christian experience is. In Matthew 5.13, we'll see later, not too many verses from now, that Christ will speak to believers. He'll talk about them being the salt of the earth. Okay? Salt of the earth. And then in Matthew 4.15, looking back, he talked about him being the light of the world. He used those terms. There are realities right now that we experience because of our relationship with Christ, obviously, that the world does not experience. You, could, you can refer to that as our inheritance. We are experiencing some of our inheritance right now. And I'll just say it simply, for you to be able to lay your head on your pillow at night as you're about to drift off to sleep and you've finished your final prayer of the day or whatever, and there's peace in your heart, there's confidence in your heart, you do see things clearly. You do have hope. You know that the next morning, if you live through the night, when you get up and put your feet on the floor and get ready for the day, that Christ has promised to go before you to prepare the way of the righteous, as it says. He's doing that. We have that. We're enjoying that part of our inheritance. And thank God that we have that. We do have it. Matthew used the word earth 43 times. 43 times. So, when we look at how those verses are linked together, we see that this promise has a whole lot more to do with the Jews inheriting the the promised land. It has to do with the fulfillment of God's plan for His people, all of His people. He says the petition anticipates a time when God's plan for the earth itself will be fulfilled finally and completely. A quote from Quarles in the Sermon on the Mount book that I've been studying and reading in, in preparation for these lessons. So we have that. Our present inheritance is characterized by hope. It's characterized by confidence. It's characterized by the joy that we have. True joy is a result of our possession of the Holy Spirit, or I might say the Holy Spirit possessing us. We are literally in Christ Jesus. We experience His presence within us. And we have the privilege, the deeper privilege of being able literally to see things as Christ sees them. The Bible says, for we have the mind of Christ. Isn't that awesome? We can see it clearly. We can see the truth of a situation apart from all the entanglements and influences of the world. We can do that. And only those who are possessors of God's Holy Spirit can do that. Give me four more minutes. So why is meekness necessary? Because meekness, the Scriptures would say, is required for salvation. Psalm 149.4, rather, 149.4. For the Lord takes pleasure in His people. He will beautify the afflicted ones, with salvation. It's just talking about that experience. That experience of going poor in spirit, acknowledging our sin, if you will, and so forth. And the blessed result that can come from that. Matthew 18, 2-4, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Whoever then humbles himself, As this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Humility is required. Meekness is required. Those two go together. Secondly, because meekness is commanded. Why is it necessary? Because it's commanded. Zephaniah 2, 3. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth, who have carried out His ordinances. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Seek it. It's not something as we shared when we began our time this morning that's natural to us. James 1.21 Therefore putting aside all filthiness and all the remains of wickedness, James adds, in humility receive the word implanted which is able to save your soul. Not sold. I wrote the wrong word there. <laughs> Thirdly, 
Why is meekness necessary? Because meekness is required to witness effectively. Just a scripture here from 1 Peter 3.15. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. And then again he he adds, yet with gentleness and with reverence. This is how we're to do it. Ephesians is it 4.15? Speak the truth in love. 4.15. What else? Lastly, he says, because meekness gives glory to God. We know from Romans chapter 15, verses 5 through 7, we'll close. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Christ is our perfect example in meekness. You know, nowhere in the Scripture did He ever lash out at someone because in in an effort to protect His own persona, He didn't do that. All he ever did on every occasion was uh, if somebody had the wrong idea of God, he spoke out. If they had the wrong idea about the Word of God and what the Word of God meant, he spoke out. Never about himself. Even when he was being unjustly tried and condemned. He never came out haughty. He never came out, you know. He told Pilate, he said, you know, you would have no power over me at all were it not given to you from my Father in heaven. He didn't do that in a spirit of haughtiness. It wasn't like, I can just destroy all of y'all right now. It wasn't that. It was just to share the truth with him and to humble him. And it worked. He was scared. He was scared to death. It worked on his wife. She even started dreaming dreams about it. He said, leave this man alone. There's nothing wrong with him. No, Christ was our example. He was our example. And we can follow him in his example of humility. And meekness. It'll change us. It'll change our relationships. Change our church.